Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, brand made famous by Martina Hingis, John McEnroe, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. He was born in Belo Horizonte, Brazil and has distinguished himself as one of the best doubles players in the world, winning 32 tournaments, including the 2016 Australian Open and the U.S. Open. Bruno Suarez is today's guest. Hello. Bruno, baby. How are you? I'm good, brother. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Surviving here. And uh, where are you? I'm in Belo Horizonte, Brazil. You're you're in Belo Horizonte. You're in Minas. Minas Gerais. Exactly. Uh, Gentlemen, you hear, he was a world number one doubles player in the world with his partner, Jamie Murray, a few years ago. He got to two. He's a Grand Slam champion and stalwart of the Brazilian Davis Cup team. Do I have all that right, Bruno? Yes, correct. And that's Bruno Suarez, my man. Uh, Muito obrigado uh, para você. My pleasure. That's great Portuguese. Glad to be here. <laughs> Happy. So I do uh, a five-set format. The first, four, the first set is the off-the-court report. And my sense is, is that you left Indian Wells and you went straight back to Brazil. Is that right? Uh, almost right. Uh, luckily, uh, I have some business in, in Miami. So I went there a couple of days before to work. And I had my flight to Indian Wells on, on a Monday morning, and the tournament got canceled Sunday at 8.30 p.m. Miami time. So luckily, uh, I didn't have to fly all the way to Indian Wells. And then I was staying in Miami, waiting for the tournament, which was canceled four to five days after that as well. And then uh, I stayed a couple more days actually doing some work and then went back home. And then, you, then you flew to Belo Horizonte. You know, in Brazil, you have a, a, a president who is a highly controversial president, similar to what we have here, uh, Jair, yeah. Jair Bolsonaro. Yeah. Um, what have your impressions and observations been with how the pandemic was handled from your perspective in your country? Like you said, it was very controversial. He's not an easy guy. I think the country, before talking about that, the country is very divided. And the country has been divided for a long time, which is a very sad situation because that creates a lot of hate uh, between people and, and under tough circumstances like this one, it creates even more. There was a lot of uncertainty I mean, there's a lot of questions with no answers. Uh, No one knows exactly what's going on. TV channels pulling to one side, TV channels pulling to the other side. So like I said, it's, it's for me, to be honest, not in favor of him, not in favor of the other side as well. To be honest, I'm extremely disappointed for the past 15 to whatever years, 20 years, or maybe forever with our political system. And for me, I just find it, so difficult to believe everything that I hear and I see on the news. So the one thing I've been trying to do is talk to doctors and people that I actually trust to, to get the, you know, a little bit more accurate information 
and try to do my part and stay safe and, and do the things that I, that I have to do. Now, are people dancing the samba in the street? Are they drinking not, the cachaça? No, no. Not yet. They, no. Tried, they tried to open restaurants for a couple of days. They shut down after the first day because it didn't work. You know, people started going there. No one was uh, using masks. No uh, social distancing. So they closed everything down. Let's move into our second set. Uh, this is the portion of the show I call it the On the Court Report. And typically we are talking about the schedule and tennis and, 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 and tournament. But I want to talk to you. Uh, you're, you you sat on the ATP Council and the ATP Board now for some time. And yeah. I thought that we could use this time to talk about the business of tennis. What can you tell us that's interesting? Business of tennis. I mean, right now extremely tough extremely challenging i mean we were now no do you talk to andrea gaudenzi every day do you uh, we, we talk we have our whatsapp chats and we talk quite often we've been having meetings i would say once every 15 days during the quarantine and it's tough i mean they're working with a lot of plans a lot of different ideas but there's not much they can do other than you know, work, come out of the plan, and then change that because nothing is, is open. So this is what we have for the moment. The USDA has got some um, interesting plans. Let's see if that, if that happens. But the one thing is, it's not in our hands. So it's extremely tough to sit down and talk about something that we have no idea. Have you had any um, interesting conversations about uh, a merger between the WTA and the ATP. Well, we we did talk about that. I think uh, if there is a time to do that or to start looking into that, it's right now. But my thing is, I don't think we should do a, ma a merger between ATP and WTA only. I think we should merge tennis. Uh, so we should merge ATP, WTA, ITF, and the slams. So I think we should be one government body and run tennis. I think we can only gain from that. Everything that's worth is gonna explode even more. Everything that we're trying to do now and everything that we do separating, we lose value. So the moment we can have one sport, one organization, I think everyone is going to really profit from that. Let's move into our third set. This yeah. is the portion of our show. We talk about your career. Now, yeah. my first question, I have, a, I have a few very specific things I want to know. But the first thing is, is you were born in Iraq. Uh, actually, not born. I was born in Belo Horizonte, but I moved to Iraq when I was two months old. You went from two months old to six years old in Iraq, exactly. in Baghdad. In Baghdad. Uh, it was can, you actually, explain, can you explain that? Yeah, I can explain that. It looks very crazy, but uh, actually it was a good place back in the days. That was in the 80s. I was, I'm born in uh, February uh, 1982. My dad uh, got a job. Job. I mean, he was working in a Brazilian company and they got a, a job to do in Iraq. So they sent a bunch of families to live there. 
And your father uh, is a civil engineer. Exactly. So they were building a highway from Baghdad to the second biggest city, which I forgot the name. Uh, so we went to live there. Uh, the first five years, we actually lived in camps, which was across the highway uh, because it was a big highway. So we couldn't go back and forth to Baghdad the whole time. So they, they had a couple camps along the road uh, and in the main one, which was about a hundred something kilometers from Baghdad, they had the Brazilian school. It was actually the same school that I went here when I got back. Uh, so I was uh, studying in a, in a Brazilian school. The last year, my dad was uh, moved to work from the office and the office was in Baghdad. So the sixth year, we lived in Baghdad. And then I was studying in American school. Uh, and we were supposed to stay there uh, for a couple more years. But at that year, 1989, we came back, my mom, me, my sister, and my brother, we came back for summer vacation to Brazil. And three days after we got here, the United States started to go for. So we never go, went back to Iraq. My dad was supposed to come one week after for us to, to join us for vacation. He ended up stuck in the country for about four months uh, during the war. Uh, very rough times for us, very tough to communicate. We didn't have much information about him. So after four months, he was released and he came back with two bags only. We, we left everything there and headed to store it all over here, uh, our life again. Oh my God. Now, do you have memories as being a little kid uh, in Baghdad? Was there like posters of Saddam Hussein all over the place? I mean, do you remember being there? Yeah, I, I actually remember quite a lot. Uh, when we're living in a camp, uh, most of the families, they were Brazilians. So it was basically living in a very small city in Brazil. When we lived in Baghdad, uh, it was very international and it was a very nice place. Uh, the Arabic people, they are very friendly people. Uh, so those countries, uh, countries like Iraq, they're very divided with the extreme people that follow their leader Saddam like crazy and the rest of the people. And the rest of the people, let's call it the normal people, the people from Iraq, they're extremely friendly. So I remember, you know, my, my, my parents having a lot of uh, Arabic friends. We we're going to their place, having dinner, spending, you know, the weekends there. We we're going to country clubs to swim in the weekends. Uh, it was a very nice environment to grow. It was very safe, uh, and, and it, was, it, was, it was good times for us. Unfortunately, after the war, uh, things got really complicated over there, and then, you know, history tells you uh, all the, the complications that they had over there when, when they killed Saddam and the war started again. So, but back in the days, it was quite a nice place. Where does your tennis begin? Uh, it started actually, the, the very little started in the camp, in the main camp. Uh, it was a brief period of my parents' life that they played tennis, actually. So I was around five, and I started going to the club with them and, and, and you know, just being around there. And they were playing tennis, and I was watching and just, you know, getting a racket and a ball and just, you know, walking around and hitting the wall and whatever I could. And then at one point, we, went, we moved to Baghdad, and I told my dad, I said, I want to play tennis. So he looked for a private coach in the, in the place that we lived, and, uh, and I started my first lessons um, over there in Baghdad. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and you, so you come back to Belarusanchi. Um, 
Is it true that you grew up with Ricardo Mello? Uh, no, with Marcelo Mello. Oh, sorry, Marcelo Mello. Uh, yes, did, yes, did, did you grow up with him? Yeah, we grew up together. We're from the same city. Uh, we are one year apart. He's one year younger than me. Uh, so grew up with him. I uh, spent a lot of time with his brother as well. He was playing at that time, Daniel, which is his coach now. Quite some time with Andresa. Not as much because he, he went to, to, to the United States. But we all come from Belo Horizonte and from the same country club. And, and, and um, were you good from a young age? Were you practicing with these guys, Sa and Mello? Were there good players? You, did you get very good as a 8-year-old, 9-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old? Yeah, I, well, I had uh, – I mean, I was, I was always a decent uh, junior in my, in my age. Uh, just, I mean, in the end, I ended up being number one and two in Brazil when I was 15, 16. But in the beginning, I was always top five. I was always around there. Uh, I spent a lot of time with them. But and then when I was 11, I moved to Rio de Janeiro and I lived there for four years. So I was out of Belo and away from them. But and then when I got back to Belo, we are back practicing together once again. Now, did you um, ever, did you like meet Guga when you were a kid and did you practice with Guga? Uh, not when I was a kid. Uh, no. I met, I saw Guga playing when he was 18. And I was, uh, I was 12, saw him playing at some junior tournaments. Uh, but and then I didn't get, really get to, got to meet him until I was 18. And I had my first Davis Cup experience as a junior from Brazil. And then from the next couple of years, I actually spent some time with him practicing and helping uh, them at, uh, with Davis Cup practices. And uh, sometimes spending uh, some time with him practicing. So yeah, good uh, good times back in the days with him. Are, is is the Brazilian tennis community tight? Are you are you like close with you know Jaime on scenes and Bellagini and and Sa and, and and Guga? Are you guys all together? Do you guys go for dinner? This and that. Yeah, I think I think we're very we're pretty solid uh, community. Uh, I mean, Brazil is a huge country, so. It's difficult because we are everywhere. So sure, I'm here sure. with Melo. Uh, Andresa lives in Rio now. Jamonsen lives in Orlando. Google lives in Floripa. Uh, Meli Jenny lives in, in, in Sao Paulo. Ricardo Melo lives in Campinas. We are everywhere. But I feel like every time we get together, we get along really well. I mean, we spend a lot of time together growing up and playing tennis. Uh, and every time we, we have a chance, we go out for dinner, we have some fun. So I think we're pretty, pretty tight community. Of course, like, like everywhere that there's a lot of people, you get along better with certain uh, people than others. But I feel overall, we're very nice uh, unit uh, community. How important was Guga to Brazilian tennis? Um... I think in Brazil, he was like, he completely changed the course of people's life in tennis. Guga was the normal guy no money, came from a small island, Florianopolis, no support, no sponsors, no shortcuts, no support from the Federation, just completely worked his way to number one, from nothing to number one. To number lost one, man. To number yeah. one. To number Unbelievable, one, yeah. incredible. Lost, lost his dad at a, at a young age. Mom 
uh, took care of uh, uh, the family, you know, uh, and just really work hard. And he is such a nice, humble guy, never changed. It didn't matter how much he won, how much money he had, how many titles, number one. He was always that same simple, humble, nice guy. I mean, his charisma is still, you know, to, today is second to none. Everywhere he goes, people love him. And this is just him. It's everyone that knows him can vouch for that because it's, this is just Guga. He's the same guy on court, off court, and everywhere he goes. So he was the guy that actually made us believe that it was possible, it was doable, and that we were all dreaming as young kids to be a tennis player, but that dream could actually become reality. Because until Guga, it was only a dream. And this dream was so far apart from, from becoming reality to all of us that we actually didn't really believe. And I think Guga was the guy that really changed that and said, guys, just you know, work hard, it is doable. So he, he completely changed you know, people's life. Your story has two parts. You have the part where you played singles, and then there's the part where you became one of the best doubles players in the world. So, what's, so tell me about part one. When did you realize, when did you, what happened that you were going to become a player, that you were going to become a pro player and make a go at this? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I was always a decent junior. Uh, when I was 16, I started having some success outside of Brazil, you know, winning South American tournaments, went to Europe, got to play a little bit there, didn't have great results, came back really frustrated, but that was good for me because it kept me, you know, on my, on my heels, uh, knowing that, you know, if you want to play tennis, reality is in Europe and you are so far from that, so you better work. <laughs> your butts out because otherwise you're not going to become a professional tennis player. At 18, same thing, had a lot of success here in South America, went to Europe, uh, played much better, thought that my level was, was up there. The thing is doubles was always part of me. I always loved doubles. So since I'm 11, 12, every time I had a chance to play doubles, I've played doubles. And the thing that uh, it got me to where I am today I believe is that I always loved to practice doubles as well. So I was, I was always doing my career. I was always practicing both. And when you look back, you realize now that you were always gravitating towards doubles. Exactly. We hear that a lot. We hear that a lot. Yeah. I, I always had a lot of success in doubles. And to be honest, my singles career was quite disappointing for me because I believe that the level that I had, and the way I was playing when I finished my junior career, I should have been better. So I, I was a little bit disappointed at myself. Well, uh, now, now you got to 200 in the world yeah. and then you stopped. How hard was it to get inside of the top 200? It, it was really hard. It's, it's a huge uh, accomplishment when you're top 100 in singles. Um, I was, when I got injured was actually when I was starting to play better singles. It took me three to four years to quite understand my game, uh, understand how I needed to play, uh, what I needed to do to become a better player. And I was, and I was on my way up when I got injured. Uh, that, was, that was tough on me. I was, out, I was out from the courts for two years. And when I got back, you know, I had a lot of questions in, in, in my head. Can I play tennis again? Am I going to have the level 
to play tennis again. And my body gonna hold up when I get back after not playing for two years. So when I started playing back in July 2007, let me just. I'm, I'm sorry, one second. Yeah. So, so did you have a catastrophic injury or did you have a chronic injury? Well, I, I had a crazy injury to be honest because I had a uh, stress fracture on my tibia, and I had an IT band inflammation, which is something really common on runners. At that time, I used to run a lot uh, to do fitness, but this is something that usually takes five to six months. My, my injury ended up taking uh, one year and eight months plus four months of recovery. So it was just crazy because it wasn't anything chronic. It wasn't anything sudden. It was just an inflammation that you wouldn't go. And yeah, so after two years, a lot of questions. I got, I got back to play really just to see where my, my body and my level was. But you were working in a, a – I, I understand that you, like, were working in a gym. Yeah, yes. Yeah. you so, got to tell the story. You, got, you, you, you ended up getting into Wimbledon. Tell the story of what happened to you, how you yeah, came back. Yeah, I was, I was actually, after five, six months uh, doing rehab and not doing anything other than rehab. Because and and this is what, 2006? This is 2005. 2005. Okay. So in the, in the end of 2005, early 2006, I said, you know what? I got to do something. I need a plan B. I didn't have a plan B at the time. I got to work. I got to make money. I got to do something. I got to study. I can't just sit around and do rehab waiting for the moment that I'm going to get back on court. And maybe that moment's not even going to come. So I started doing some courses. I started looking in some things. And at that time, I decided to open two gyms here in my city. Uh, so and went to the went to Waco, Texas, to do a course uh, on how to run these facilities. Uh, did that. It started working, and by the end of 2000, no, sorry, by the beginning of 2007, uh, I started doing my rehab and getting back on court slowly. So kept working on the gym. Had my two two places. Uh, got back on the tennis court in July 2007. Uh, doing both, working and playing, working and playing. And then by July, by 2008, by the end of 2007, I decided to go for doubles. I said, you know what? I got to, you know, put a goal. I got to, you know, do something in 2008. I got I to gotta have a plan. So I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I've never done this doubles thing. Uh, so let's try. Let's see where can I go. So I started the year ranked 194 in doubles, and uh, I was playing tournaments, playing challengers. Uh, so I signed up for the French Open uh, with Dusan Vanich, my Serbian friend. And, uh, and, then, and by the way, out. by the way, for our listeners, Dusan Vanich is like this great guy. Like no, no, everyone loves this guy. Yeah, he is and, a guru. But you guys signed in with the hopes to get in. With the hopes to get in. Uh, so we ended up being three out of the tournament. So I sent him an email. At that time, no WhatsApp, nothing. I sent him an email and said, Deuce, mate, I'm sick of playing challengers. I want to go to Paris and, and, and try our luck. What are you up to? He said, you know what? He's, you know him. He's a super relaxed, chilled guy. He said, Bruno, whatever you want, man. I'm going to be in Paris anyway. I have some club matches on the weekend. I'm going to be around. I said, perfect. Let's do this. 
So we get there five days in advance. We're practicing, you know, we're just sitting around and, and, and waiting. We're out of the tournament. Uh, and then all of a sudden, we get in. You know, I'm, I'm it's Thursday night. I'm walking for dinner. And uh, I get, a, I don't even know what I got. It was email. I, phone I got a call. Message. Yeah. Yeah, phone call, whatever it is. I, I think I had a Blackberry at that time. From the tour manager and say, Bruno, you guys got in and you play tomorrow at 11 a.m. And this is walking around Champs-Élysées at Thursday, 8.15, <laughs> to go get you know, dinner, completely out of the tournament, completely relaxed, to play first match on next day. So I said, let's do it. I said, does, uh, so I replied and I said, does Damage know that we are in? Because I can't get a hold of him right now. Maybe he's you know, sleeping already. And they said, no, he knows. I said, perfect, I'll see him in the morning. So we go there. We warm up, so excited to be in. You know, one week later, we're in the semifinals of, uh, of the French Open. Uh, and that completely changed the, the, my career. But semifinals. Semifinals. And then I'm losing 7-6 in the third, three-hour, 15 match with a chance, two points away to being in the final. Um, just briefly, when you got on the court for the first round, um, I mean, were you guys just laughing? Like, yo, can you believe we got in? And it just, like, did you start, was it, was maybe there was no pressure? You'd start playing well? Was something yeah. about Doosan? Like, what was it like those two weeks? Well, it was, it was interesting because it was funny because I thought when I got in, I thought, you know, I was quite nervous, like, because I had that feeling that I was actually almost on vacation in Paris. You know, <laughs> at 8.15, I'm on vacation. At 8.16, I have a match next day, first on. So, got a little tight, thinking about that. But when we got on court, we're super relaxed. The, thing, the good thing is, me and, and, and Dusan, we had a really good vibe. We still have, but on court, we had a really good vibe. We knew each other for, you know, quite some time. We were friends. And we're just, you know, playing some good tennis, very relaxed, of course, very motivated, very pumped to win, playing our first Grand Slam, I mean, my first Grand Slam. And, and things just started, you know, going our way. We played extremely well, beat some very impressive teams. And, uh, you know, like I said, one week after we win the semifinals. And where did your ranking go after that tournament? When I started, I think I was about 96, 97 in the world. I had, I had a lot of good results on the challenger level until the French Open. So I started the year 194. I made it just barely inside the top 100 at that time. So I moved from 97, I would say 96, to about 40-something, 40 42, 43. Uh, but the, the, the interesting thing is in the quarterfinals, we beat Kevin Ulliet and Jonas Bjorkman. Uh, and both top 10 guys, both well-known Grand Slam winners, unbelievable players. And a couple of days after, I get a text from Kevin Ulliet, who was a guy that I didn't know at that time, saying, Bruno, um, congratulations on the tournament. Um, I just want to ask you, uh, Jonas is not going to play the week before Wimbledon. I'm looking for a partner. Do you want to play with me? And I'm like, I remember this was after my semifinals. I was having dinner. And, and my brother went to Paris to, to watch uh, my semis. And we were sitting around having, you know, dinner, talking about how crazy life is. One week after, you know, I just played semis of a Grand Slam, my first Grand Slam. 
And I show him the text and I say, listen, it's just getting crazy and crazy. The guy is number six in the world and just asked me to play a tournament in two weeks. And ended up, of course, saying yes to Kevin. Uh, we got in the tournament and we won the tournament. So two weeks after, I won my first tour event. So from not playing a tour event, not, had, not, not playing a slam, I played semifinals in my first slam and I won the other tour event. So <laughs> things changed, uh, flipped around very, very fast. And then I was about maybe 31, 32 in the road. And then from that point on, I, I said, no, this is my thing. And I never looked back. Bro, that's an incredible story. <laughs> it's that's crazy. an unbelievable story. Yeah, it was, it was insane. Insane 10 days for me. Wow. Now, um, I understand your father passed away at some juncture. Um, yeah. That's a very tough club to be a member of. I, I uh, have that distinction yeah. as well. Um, yeah. Who was your dad and how did he um, – what happened? And, and how did – you know, what was that like? Yeah, my dad, uh, my dad and my mom, uh, he was always very uh, a big part of my tennis life. My, my parents, they were always very supportive. They were always pushing me to work hard. And if I had a dream and if I wanted to become a tennis player, that I needed to work hard. And there was always very supportive of that but also always they always wanted me to have good grades in school so they were very uh nice to me very supportive of everything that i did i was i'm, I'm third kid so i had a very different uh life let's put it that way from my two brothers that had the normal way of studying and going to school and and and, and this was, was something new for my parents and they was always very supportive and my dad he was always a big role model and example for me because he, he was actually doing something very similar that what I needed to do, which was completely get out of a comfort zone, get out of home and just, you know, go, uh, you know, chase your dream. He was, he went to live before I was born. They were living in the jungle. So my, my parents live in the jungle for about a year and a half. When I say jungle was jungle was the Amazon. My mom said there was crocodiles, you know, when they opened the door. So, and then, you know, back in the 80s to get the whole family and move to Iraq. So he was actually setting the bar pretty high for us in terms of if you want something, go get it, you know, work hard. But he was always very close, very supportive and always very happy to, to see me and support me playing tennis. Uh, I think the sad part for me of the timing that my dad passed away. He passed away from cancer. Uh, from the day that he discovered, from the day that he passed away, it was 28 days. So basically he had no chance to fight. Uh, it came really crazy, really fast. I think the sad thing for me is he never got to see me on a very high level. He saw me watch a few uh, uh, tour events, but he passed away uh, actually today in 2012. He passed away June 9, uh, 2012. And I won the US Open mix that same year. So it was my first huge title and he wasn't there to celebrate with us. But I mean, it's just, 
it's it's tough. I mean, every time you think about it, it's it's just tough to not have, you know, someone uh, from your family around, uh, and you gotta get you know used to to that. Um, on a you know on a little bit of a lighter note, I understand that you like to play with lefties. Do you always yeah. play now? So my question is. Do you always play the deuce court and do you – or sorry, do you always play the ad court and do you always play with a lefty and why? Uh, yeah, I've been, I've been doing that for quite a while now. It's not easy to find the lefty. There's not many lefties out there. Uh, but I think it, it wasn't actually on purpose. Uh, I played with Kevin, I played with Marcelo, and I played with Alex for a long time, Alex Payan. Uh, and then my first lefty was Jamie. Jamie Murray, um, uh, yeah. who uh, you've had Jamie a lot, of, you guys yeah. had a lot of real big time success. But go exactly. on. Exactly. So it was a great uh, combination having him on my side and having a lefty on my side. I think it really gives a good uh, twist to the game, uh, you know, to have a lefty righty combo. Uh, to be honest, it wasn't anything planned with Mate now, Mate Pavic, uh, that he's a lefty. I mean, with Mate, it was more that, you know, I liked his game. I liked the guy. Uh, so when me and Jamie split, I was looking for a couple of options, and Mate was, was one of them and uh, ended up uh, working out. But it wasn't necessarily because he was a lefty that I, that I chose to, to, to ask him. But I do believe the lefty-righty combo is a super uh, good value for, for, for a double stem. Do you feel like you have more um, opportunities to poach? Do, I think do you feel so. more? I think, sorry. Yeah, no, I think when you have a left righty and they play the formation that we play, that the Bryans play, which is having the lefty on the due side and the, and the righty on the, on the ad side, I think the middle becomes really strong uh, and you have more times and more opportunity to work and poach and put pressure with the forehand side which for most of the players, not everyone, it's much easier and you have more reach and then you have more, you know, skills with the forehand side. So I think it, it becomes a strong combo because of that. Another, the other thing is the spin, you know, the opponents always see a different spin. And I think this is something that it's uh, quite positive as well. In pro tennis now, 2020, is is the, do you when you are giving signals and stuff is 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 the poach on or are you kind of always poaching is the game well, just all about little poaches and think, you're not necessarily just crossing or yeah. you are well i think in tennis there's three way three ways of poaching you know the first one is by uh, instinct okay you just feel that you have to poach, you poach, and that's it. The second one is by reaction. Maybe you don't want to poach, but you react fast enough to poach and intercept that ball. And the third one is by command. So you say, you tell your partner, I'm going to poach, no matter what, cover me, let's switch. Yeah. So those are three ways of poaching. And then it's basically up to your skill level of poaching. Jamie, for example, He's a great poacher by instinct. So he reads the game extremely fast for him to be in the best possible position to intercept the ball. Some guys don't have that skill. This is a very tough skill to have. So some guys poach more from reaction 
or from command, you know? So it really depends. But I do think if you play doubles on a high level, you do have to put a lot of pressure. If you stay quiet in your place, people are going to dominate you. That goes for club tennis too, by the way. There's nothing oh, worse. Yeah. It, the, the best thing in club tennis is if the players, even regardless of level, are proficient at the net and actually are, are not, not hugging the alley and are trying to poach and trying to cross. Exactly. It's so exactly. much better. Come oh, on, yeah. baby. You got you to put pressure. Doubles, it's, it's a little bit of a chess game. So it's applying pressure and making the opponent hit the tough shot. So hitting the doubles early, it's a tough, tough shot. If you make him hit that shot all the time, he's going to miss way more than he's going to make it. So that's the one you got to give him. There's nothing like good high-level doubles, baby. Let's move into our fourth set. This is the portion of our show. We call it the 10-ball scramble. It's not a deep dive. I say something, and you just say what comes into your mind. We go quick, okay? All right. I'll try. Favorite tournament? Queens. Favorite court? Can be any court Hard in the world. Court. Hard court. Is there a special court in the world that you just always play great tennis on? Court 17 at the U.S. Open. Why? So many good memories, uh, good atmosphere, great court, love playing there. Such a good vibe when it's full. Shout out to court 17. Uh, favorite city? Favorite city? New York. The racket you currently are playing with? The Wilson. Uh, I don't even know the name of my racket. This is bad. So what color is it? What color is it? It's black and white. Black and white Wilson. How do you string your racket? 50 pounds. What, what string do you play with? Uh, Luxlon. Aldo Power. Big banger. Uh, 16 gauge, 17 gauge? 16, 125, yeah. What size grip do you play with? Four three eighty with uh, overgrip on top of it. Um, where do you keep your credentials? Do you save your credentials or you throw them away? I keep them inside a bag right now <laughs> uh, in my closet. But I actually want to do something in this actually room that we sit in right now, which I'm going to put a bar and have all my credentials lined up in order. Wow. Now, um, where do you put your trophies? The same room that I'm sitting, I have my, my trophies here. My, this is my room in the house. It's my, my office. So this is where I keep most of my stuff. Trophies are in the office. Um, yeah. Your favorite player growing up? My favorite player growing up, I'm going to say Guga. Uh, is there a woman that you like to watch play back when you were a kid? Uh, Steph Graffy. Steffi Graff. Is there a player you love now? Is there a player you just love to watch now? Uh, that I love to watch now, like Roger, like Rafa, like Tsitsipas. Your greatest moment in tennis? Winning a Grand Slam. Not one specific one? Just all of the, all the slams have been amazing for you? I think 2016 Australian Open, because it was my first men's. Let's move into our fifth and final set. We call this the king of the court. Let's if you could it. be the king of tennis and you could make yeah. a change in the sport, what would it be? What would you do? If I could make a change in sport, this is a very tough question. I think 
I would try to have less tournaments, more Grand Slams, bigger events, bigger tennis festivals, instead of having tennis so spread out. I would try to do maybe something like a Formula One, but with the big quantity of people, like a Grand Slam that we can have you know, 250 something players playing in the same tournament with qualities and everything. I'll maybe have, you know, a tour of that, uh, eight to 10, 12 tournaments. And, and I think it would, would be really nice. A Formula One situation, but for tennis. But for tennis, yeah. Hey, man, I love that. I think that's very cool. Bruno, um, First of all, uh, thank you so much for uh, finally we got a chance to talk to each other. Um, yeah. I appreciate the time and uh, man, what a story, man! That's just incredible. You went from you went from nowhere to everywhere. Exactly. It's from what's two the months uh, in Iraq to playing tennis still. What's the moral of the story? Well, moral of the story, I guess it's keep chasing your dreams. They might go crazy. You might lose track of it. You might go in a different direction someday, but you know, keep in chasing that. Keep working hard. Hey man, next time uh, we're back in the same place, let's have a cachaça and uh, you know, speak to each other in person it will be terrific. Let's do it. And don't forget to go to Oakberry in LA and try our acai and let me know how you like it. Very cool. Uh, Bruno Suarez, uh, muito obrigado uh, para você e felicidade for your whole country and for your family. Muito obrigado. Thank you, man. You are released. Thank you very much, Greg. That was amazing. Thanks for having me. Huge thank you to Bruno Suarez. We'd also like to thank Sergio Tacchini. See what they're doing at SergioTacchini.com. Use my code, CRAIG30, in all caps at checkout. 30% off of your order. Also, the new Quarantine Classic t-shirts have arrived in white and terabat too. The shirts are a throwback to the junior tennis tournament shirts we used to get as kids. They're cool, they're selling like hotcakes. If you're interested, shoot me a note. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro and you are released.